Chapter 15 of Vietnam, The Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 15 Air Operations, 1963 Although some U.S. units were scheduled to leave Vietnam by the end of 1963, the JCS earlier that year had suggested, and Secretary McNamara approved, an additional C-123 Provider Squadron for Da Nang. Arrival of the 777th Troop Carrier Squadron in April 1963 with 16 C-123s augmented the airlift of the 29 C-123s at Tan Crew manning permitted each provider to fly 60 hours per month. In addition, eight UH-1 Otters, 1601A bird dog observation planes, 10 UH-1B Iroquois helicopters, and a second CV-2 Caribou Company reached Vietnam to support the core tactical zones and special forces. General Harkins, MACV commander, had agreed to place the CV-2s under the coordinated airlift system. However, Army headquarters in Hawaii urged Admiral Felt to recognize the special features of the Caribou. The Army had purchased the planes for short takeoff and landing, which rendered them instantly responsive to ground commanders in combat zones. While centralized control of airlift was more efficient for cargo deliveries, swift reaction to a field commander's needs came first. In this context, Harkins assigned the two caribou companies to centralized airlift control, but one of these had the further mission of immediate support to the senior corps advisors. The Southeast Asia Airlift System managed the 48 Air Force C-123s, 32 Vietnamese C-47s, and 32 Army CV-2s. Though the C-123s normally made deliveries to four major depots and 29 other distribution points, they actually operated at 95 different airfields and 65 drop zones. Carrying a lighter load than the C-123, the CV-2 could use shorter runways, but reversible propellers let the provider land on wet surfaces in distances impossible for the caribou, not yet so equipped. The 8th Aerial Port Squadron expanded in May by creating detachments 6 and 7 at Quinon and Canto. Temporary duty personnel served 120-day duty tours at the new sites. Much of the Southeast Asia Airlift System's work dealt with tactical operations. About 30% of the troop carrier flights were paradrop resupply, paratrooper drops, and assault air landings. Resolute efforts to support remote stations drew grateful praise from the ground troops. They deemed the system reliable and responsive. Uncertain surface travel, the conservative bent of logistic planners, and the use of scaled U.S. planning factors tended to inflate requirements. In October, the airlift system's excess capacity prompted plans for reduction. In December, MACV's strength was paired by 1,000. Released were personnel of the Army's 1st Aviation Company, Caribou, the 30 U.S. Air Force C-47 pilots flying with the Vietnamese Air Force, and half of the 8th Aerial Port Squadron's people. The 61st Aviation Company, Caribou, with 25 CV-2s, stayed behind to support senior corps advisors. Some of these caribous became spares to ensure a certain number of operational aircraft at every core tactical zone. 
The Air Force's 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron was activated at Benhua in July 1963 and assigned to PACAF. The new unit's aircraft and crews trickled in. Four 01s and 22 crews were on board by July, and the remaining 18 planes arrived on the USS Card in August. Since Americans were forbidden to direct airstrikes, 11 seasoned Vietnamese observers were integrated into the squadron to do so. Operational in September, the unit furnished more and more forward air controllers and air liaison officers for the national campaign plan. Its primary mission was to train Vietnamese liaison pilots in forward air control, visual reconnaissance, combat support, and observer procedures. The aim was to replace those pilots drained off to fill fighter cockpits. The squadron was to remain in Vietnam no more than a year, then turn its O-1s over to the Vietnamese. Preparations to open a training center at Nha Trang were delayed because American pilots needed proficiency in the U.S. Army L-19 01 aircraft. General LeMay had ordered this plane sent in lieu of depleting the few L-28s in U.S. Air Force stocks. As his director of plans, Major General John W. Carpenter III said, the chief clearly expressed his desires toward getting on with the war against the communists in Vietnam as opposed to worrying about the source of light aircraft. After 25 officers and 69 airmen underwent factory training in July and August, they opened the Nha Trang Center in September. Trainees took one month of pre-flight instruction and three months of primary flight training that included 80 hours of actual flying. Vietnamese liaison pilots in reasonable numbers were ready for combat in early 1964. Twelve Air Force officers and 47 airmen reached Tansanut in January 1963 to train Vietnamese helicopter pilots. By June, they graduated 15 student pilots who were qualified to fly H-19s. The training went on throughout the year. Admiral Felt hoped that the Vietnamese could have the four RT-33 jets authorized by the Military Assistance Program. In February, however, Secretary of State Rusk announced that overriding political considerations and international risks ruled out their delivery. Shortly thereafter, the Joint Chiefs approved a boost in U.S. Air Force reconnaissance aircraft, including four RB-26s and two more RF-101s for Farmgate. The RB-26s reached Tonsonut in March from Fort Worth, Texas. Two of them were equipped for night photography and the other two were experimental RB-26Ls specially outfitted with night photo and Reconifax-4 infrared sensing devices. In May, 5th Air Force 6091st Reconnaissance Squadron flew two RB-57s to a temporary duty site at Tanzanut. These jets featured advanced and improved day and night K-52 panoramic cameras and Reconifax-6 infrared sensors. Airborne high-frequency direction finders had difficulty locating Viet Cong radio transmitters. More than 200 enemy sets were active, but it was impossible to fix their exact sites. General Anthus and other officials thought it might be better to listen to the traffic instead of disrupting or destroying it. In any event, knowing where the radios were operating was deemed essential. Infrared devices were meant to detect thermal radiation emitted by campfires, vehicles, structures, and traffic on trails and streams. In theory, the sensors could pinpoint activities hidden from normal photography, but the Reconifax-4 infrared photo equipment on the RB-26Ls broke down, and the technical representative in Vietnam could not make the system, originally designed for B-58s, work. 
Climatic conditions, chiefly dust and dampness, foul the sensors. Heat from the photoflare cartridge ejectors forward of the infrared system saturated the infrared detector and ruined the film. As for the RB57E's infrared sensors, integral components were missing. The plane's panoramic cameras provided very clear horizon-to-horizon -horizon pictures even at high speed and low altitude. Having both horizons in the shot enhanced the perspective of the photo interpreter, but he had to learn how to compensate for distortion in the wide lateral coverage. When equipment worked, the intelligence apparatus was often unable to exploit the information gathered. The zonal concept of ground operations worked against a centralized air reconnaissance network. Separating intelligence data by core tactical zone was not easy because planes flew across core boundaries. Moreover, there were no courier aircraft to deliver reconnaissance film rapidly throughout Vietnam before the coming of two U-3s from the United States in May. Army OV-1 Mohawks attached to Vietnamese ground divisions reacted quickly to shifting situations. However, the intelligence they collected was not fed into the National Intelligence Reconnaissance setup. General Harkins still labeled the Mohawks as complementary rather than competitive to U.S. Air Force and Vietnamese tactical air reconnaissance. He saw no need to coordinate them with the standard activities, saying they were outside the specialized capabilities of other photo aircraft. Air Force planes flew nearly all the reconnaissance in 1963, yet the flights failed to glean a great deal of intelligence. By reason of weather, jungle, and forested terrain, finding and photographing the small and fleeting enemy targets was a stiff proposition. Air defense radar control centers were situated at Tansanut, Da Nang, and Pleiku. These and the radar at Ubon, Thailand, gave high-altitude surveillance. The interceptor fleet consisted of Air Force F-102 and Navy EA-1F AD-5Q all-weather fighters rotated to Saigon. Mountain screening cluttered radar coverage below 5,000 feet. The F-102s performed marginally in low-level interceptions, while the EA-1Fs lacked the speed to intercept aircraft intruding in areas distant from Saigon. To stretch the coverage, and especially to scan much of south-central Vietnam, the Vietnamese Air Force moved a TPS-1 10D training radar from Tansanut to Ban Me Thuo in February 1963. From February 10th to 15th, an unusual number of low-level, slow-flying radar tracks appeared before midnight near Pleiku and Da Nang, then disappeared before dawn. Air Force and Navy interceptors investigated, using flares and other techniques. They found nothing, the tracks vanishing from ground and air radars as the planes approached. Around Da Nang on February 14th, a Navy aircraft intercepted a flight of ducks. Consequently, officials concluded that migrating waterfowl had caused the unknown tracks. Convinced that no air battles would be fought in Vietnam, General Harkins nevertheless sensed the need for flight following. Since November 1961, mule-trained transport squadrons had used their network of high-frequency radios. Farmgate crews reported their in-flight positions to the nearest radar control center every 30 minutes. On January 10, 1963, an Army OV-1 was lost during an unreported flight out of Quinon, and it took over 250 search sorties to find the plane. In March, the Flight Service Center and network was born at Tansanut.
the reduced likelihood of communist air intrusions and the birth of the flight service center and network threw into question the need for the F-102s and EA-1Fs at Tanzanut. Safety considerations alone seemed to warrant their removal, for 233 military aircraft of all sorts used the airfield, along with commercial planes. General Anthus wanted to clear the 10,000-foot runway by moving out some of the helicopters, but PACAF suggested keeping the interceptors on call in the Philippines. These planes withdrew in May. The supersonic F-102s could return to Tonsonut within 12 hours, the EA-1Fs within 48. There was no call for them in 1963, however. Triggered by President Kennedy's approval on December 31, 1962, to augment Farmgate, the Air Force in 1963 acted to regularize the status of its units in Vietnam. Admiral Felt furnished the impetus when he spurned the principle hitherto held that U.S. Air Force personnel sent to the country had to have prior training in counterinsurgency. Farmgate, he said, was flying conventional missions. Airmen could accordingly be assigned on a routine permanent change of station basis. This would clear the way for doubling the number of air crews and maintenance men, and could raise the sortie rate by 25 or 30 percent. Felt, in addition, wished to boost the number of liaison aircraft and forward air controllers by a full two squadrons, to furnish visual reconnaissance beyond anything already on hand. This, he said, would be the key to a successful national campaign plan. General LeMay, in early February, pressed for putting U.S. markings on Farmgate aircraft. He said that current classification restrictions on Farmgate are considered unnecessary. Actual operation is well known through SVN and classification has become an administrative burden. The State Department queried Admiral Nolting in a series of articles in the press on U.S. combat air activities, particularly those of American piloted aircraft. In his reply, Nolting pointed out the rather gradual and inevitable uncovering of facts by U.S. journalists. That Americans flew combat aircraft was common knowledge. This was expressly true after the deaths of Captains John P. Bartley and John F. Shaughnessy, Jr. in an RB-26 downed by Viet Cong fire on February 3rd, and the loss of Major James E. O'Neill in a crash three days later. Secretary of State Rusk, however, continued to accent the American role as strictly limited to advisory, logistic, and training functions. General LeMay in March again asked for permission to declassify Farmgate, but Ambassador Nolting said, we are winning without such overt U.S. action. By June 1963, MACV had 16,652 people, 4,790 of them Air Force. On the 28th, Secretary of Defense McNamara froze MACV's strength. To clear up the confusing array of U.S. Air Force units, PACAV formed new ones without expanding manpower authorizations. On July 8th, Farmgate at Binhua became the first Air Commando Squadron composite, a regular PACAF organization. Although PACAF wanted the codename Farmgate dropped, Air Force headquarters disapproved because various logistic facilities supporting Farmgate were thoroughly familiar with the name and all it implied. As first Air Commando Squadron, Farmgate contained two strike sections. The first consisted of 10 B-26s with 23 crews, pilot and navigator, and two RB-26s. The second had 13 T-28s with two crew members per plane. In addition, there were two support sections, one of four psychological warfare U-10s 
and the other of six C-47s. The remaining eight B-26s were in detachments at Pleiku and Sok Chong. Likewise, on July 8th, the 33rd and 34th Tactical Groups came into being. Based at Tonsonut and under the 33rd Tactical Group were the 33rd Air Base Squadron, the 33rd Consolidated Aircraft Maintenance Squadron, Camron, and Detachment 1, a reconnaissance element. The 33rd Group also had detachments at Canto and Natrang. At Binhua, the 34th Tactical Group consisted of the 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron, the 34th Air Base Squadron, and the 34th Camron. Detachments of the 34th Group were at Pleiku and Sok Trang. Directly under 2nd Air Division was the 23rd Air Base Group, activated at Da Nang with its 23rd Camron. A detachment of the group at Quinon was previously the 6222nd Air Base Squadron. General Anthus wanted a single control point for the packets of reconnaissance detachments called Abel Mabel, Black Watch, Patricia Lynn, and Sweet Sue. He therefore requested a tactical air reconnaissance squadron for his 2nd Air Division, but the air staff could not create the unit within the authorized force structure. In consequence, the commander of Detachment 1, 33rd Tactical Group, exercised a loose central direction over the reconnaissance operations. The mule-trained C-123 units became troop carrier squadrons, the 309th and 310th at Tonsonut and the 311th at Da Nang. They were part of the 315th Troop Carrier Group, Assault, attached to 2nd Air Division, but assigned to PACAF's 315th Air Division Combat Cargo, headquartered in Japan. The upshot of this sweeping reorganization was to free General Anthus from dealing directly with 12 or more major subordinate units. Farmgate gained fresh aircraft in January 1963, 5 T-28s, 10 B-26s, and two C-47s, and by February boasted 42 planes and 275 men. General Anthus fashioned an airstrike team of six B-26s and one C-47 at Pleiku, which had been revamped to take B-26s. He formed another of five T-28s and one C-47 at Sok Trang, where the unimproved 3,200-foot runway admitted only T-28 operations. Until General Harkins in mid-year gave the Vietnamese border control troops some aircraft of their own, Farmgate flew combat support for them. These forces embraced about 5,000 Vietnamese Army Rangers and civilian irregular defense group personnel accompanied by U.S. Special Forces advisors. They manned 103 outposts along Vietnam's 900-mile land border to cut down on Viet Cong infiltration. Varying in size from platoon to battalion, they further carried out covert penetrations across the frontier. State Department pressure prompted the Joint General Staff to forbid ground and air operations within 10 kilometers of the border without prior approval. MACV termed the restriction completely incongruous, for this strip of de facto demilitarized territory afforded the Viet Cong safe haven. Over the last days of March 1963, U.S. Special Forces mounted an operation in the Seven Mountains of southwestern Vietnam. Farmgate bombing before the assault killed about 150 enemy and let the ground troops move into the hills. Captain John Surcell, the 2nd Air Division forward air controller assigned to the operation, went with the troops on foot 
and directed airstrikes with a PRC-10 radio. Even though the attack brought Vietnamese territory under government control, the four corps commander protested the intrusion into his zone. The Joint General Staff then ruled that Special Forces teams had to request air support through Vietnamese channels. Ten days later, the Joint General Staff removed earlier curbs on border operations. Vietnamese ground forces could now operate to the border wherever a geographical feature such as a river or road clearly marked it. Elsewhere, they could go to within 1,000 meters of the border, except along the northern part where a strip of 10,000 meters applied. Vietnamese aircraft could operate to the border where it was clearly visible, elsewhere to 2,000 meters if a forward air controller was at hand, and to 5,000 meters without air control. Corps headquarters, rather than the Joint General Staff, had to approve all actions along the frontier. The State Department ordered Ambassador Noltung to press for suspension of the new procedures since they could inflame Cambodia, North Vietnam, and China. Nolting was sympathetic to the new rules because of the considerable supplies coming across the borders to the Viet Cong. All the same, he and General Harkins talked with Vietnamese officials about how border violations seriously disturbed the common interests of Vietnam and the United States. Admiral felt new border incidents could be disruptive, but thought that trimming infiltration was worth the risk. General O'Donnell proposed having U.S. aircraft survey the border, to correct map errors. His proposal was shelved for fear of breaching the 1962 Geneva Agreement on Laotian neutrality. At the Secretary of Defense Conference in Hawaii on May 6th, the participants agreed that the troops stationed along the border must do their utmost to slow down enemy movements. But they believed putting pressure on Hanoi to be a better way to end infiltration. In April, the Joint Chiefs had identified eight targets in North Vietnam that were vulnerable to attack from American carrier and Thailand-based aircraft. Among them were the Dong Hoi and Vinh airfields, several highway bridges, POL storage, the Haiphong thermal power plant, a rolling mill, and a chemical plant. Bombing would be a warning to Ho Chi Minh but risked bringing Chinese air assistance to North Vietnam. Mr. McNamara now recommended to the conferees that SINGPAC embody airstrikes against North Vietnam for planning options. Perhaps the State Department fetters on covert operations into North Vietnam could be loosened. Roger Hillsman of the State Department informed the group that he was optimistic about the border control exercised by the Special Forces and Montagnards. Strategic hamlets combined with Montagnard operations were making dramatic gains. He predicted you have circles. In the center of each circle is a special forces team. These circles are getting bigger. When they close up, I think you will see a noticeable choking down of the use of the infiltration groups. Admiral Felt said he also expected solid progress from the airstrikes against Viet Cong war zones and bases. He scored these power centers as the nuclei of the VC governmental structure, giving protective sanctuaries for offensive enemy operations and providing little arsenals and installations. Unfortunately, all-out interdiction clashed with the individual interests of the largely independent Corps commanders. While U.S. Air Force liaison officers called for interdiction, air attacks not tied directly to ground operations began to decline. Vietnamese probes into Viet Cong Zone D during February and March made good use of pre-planned air interdiction strikes. 
Rangers swept into the area later and burnt enemy headquarters and camps along the Madar River. They discovered deep log-covered bunkers built by the communists to protect against air attacks. Inasmuch as fighters usually circled before striking, there was enough time for everybody to take cover. In March, the Air Force and Army advisors in that area got the go-ahead for a prolonged low-priority interdiction bombing program. Planes returning to base with unused ordnance could attack targets under the direction of a Vietnamese forward air controller. Strikes got underway on April 1st and went on almost every day. It was difficult to assess results due to the jungle cover. On April 30th, fighters surprised a gathering of Viet Cong and attacked. Inspecting the area the next day, the Phuc Thanh province chief estimated that over 100 enemy had been killed. Viet Cong deserters confirmed that the strikes inflicted casualties, damaged morale, and kept everyone on the move, but said the attacks were no serious threat to their existence. The communists kept a firm grip on Zone D, continuing to collect road taxes and to exact tribute from plantation owners. Between April 24th and May 24th, the two corps commanders spearheaded a drive into the Yosa War Zone headquarters area of Viet Cong Inner Zone 5 in the mountains on the borders of Quang Nai, Kantum, and Quang Tin provinces. His five regiments of ground troops and two battalions of Vietnamese Marines totaled about 10,000 men, assisted by an air support operations center. The three days of preliminary interdiction generated 36 A1H, 14 T28, and 34 B-26 sorties. Throughout the month-long operation, pilots flew 115 A-1H, 108 T-28, and 74 B-26 sorties. Besides killing five Viet Cong, these timely and potent airstrikes destroyed 238 structures and damaged 77. The badly scattered enemy would need several months to return and reestablish Viet Cong Region 5, which, like the old Interzone 5, guarded infiltration routes to base areas. Air Force and Vietnamese pilots faithfully followed the rule that airstrikes had to be handled by a Vietnamese forward air controller. Although the procedure precluded armed reconnaissance aircraft from attacking targets of opportunity, it was a sound precaution against indiscriminate bombing. Crews staging to and from forward airfields were encouraged to fly low and seek out the enemy. Before they could attack, however, they needed an airborne forward air controller. Army OV-1 crews enjoyed less stringent rules of engagement. They frequently flew as low as 50 feet, enticing the Viet Cong to open fire so they could shoot back. Lieutenant Colonel David S. Mellish, 3 Corps Air Liaison Officer, secured authority in September to start an air interdiction program. Vietnamese province chiefs certified certain areas free of friendly people. The Air Operations Center scheduled airstrikes under forward air controllers into these regions. Provincial officials reviewed each target belt weekly. This interdiction paid off in Tainan and Phuc Thanh provinces during October, though the Viet Cong learned to disperse and take cover as soon as the L-19 dropped smoke grenades to mark targets for the strike planes. Mellish persistently urged armed reconnaissance in holy Viet Cong sections. Vietnamese pilots, he said, should sweep these areas and shoot VC on sight. At present, we are ineffective because our politically inspired target marking is the best possible air raid warning the VC could hope to have. 
Colonel Donald H. Ross, 2nd Air Division Director of Operations, reminded his associates that the Vietnamese, not the Americans, were waging the war. Forward air controllers were vital to protect friendly people. Carefully targeted and controlled interdiction strikes on Viet Cong base camps, assembly areas, and logistic installations were designed to help ground troops clear and hold Vietnam. But the overriding air mission was support, preparation, and cover for Helleborne landings, night hamlet defense, and escort for convoys and trains. Over the first half of 1963, Vietnamese L-19s usually escorted truck convoys and trains, but strike aircraft covered those transporting high-priority cargoes. Vietnamese and U.S. Air Force planes flew close to 1,000 sorties in these missions. The Viet Cong ambushed no surface movement having air cover, yet were quick to pounce on motor columns and trains wanting aerial escort. Developed from original farm gate tactics, night flare strike missions and defensive outposts and hamlets under attack remained effective. One Vietnamese C-47 flare ship stayed on night ground alert at Pleiku. A second stood similar duty at Da Nang, and a third flew airborne alert every night over three and four corps. Yet the commander of the 514th Fighter Squadron refused to accept orders for A-1H night strike crews alerted at Ben Hoa and Pleiku. He argued that his pilots were not ready to fly at night, but yielded to American pressure and accepted about half of the missions requested. Fighters working with a flare ship could commonly dispense with a forward air controller during strikes in defense of an installation. However, for close air support of friendly troops under attack at night, a controller was required to mark targets. Success of flare strike defensive missions depended upon the speed with which those under attack could report to an air support operations center. By May 1963, most villages had radios and the time lapse between attack and report averaged about 48 minutes. The delay stemmed chiefly from the short ranges of the provincial radio transmitters that demanded retransmission of messages, often at district, sector, and division levels. Viet Cong attacks on hamlets and outposts from January through April were few, and an average of 33 C-47 sorties was flown each month. The enemy customarily broke off an attack when a flare plane came on the scene. In the far northern I-Corps, the 1st and 2nd Divisions controlled the coastal plain to the mountains. The Viet Cong owned the mountains aside from Special Forces camps along the Laotian border and in the Ashwa Valley Corridor toward Da Nang. In mid-January 1963, the U.S. Marine Corps Helicopter Squadron HMM-162 became operational at Da Nang with staging areas at Hue and at a point midway between Da Nang and Quang Nai. This unit's H-34s supported the border outposts with resupply and troop exchange missions that normally needed no strike aircraft support. But Air Mobile Troops assault operations took careful advance planning for fighter escort, landing zone preparation, and air cover. In these operations, the H-34s flew in three ship elements, one minute apart, en route to the landing zone. The helicopter commanders ran the whole affair, calling for strike aircraft to neutralize enemy fire. Even though the Marine Corps helicopter commanders evaluated the Vietnamese A-1H pilots as outstanding, they favored U.S. Air Force fighters because there was no communications language problem. 
When a platoon of Army UH-1 helicopters at Da Nang was attainable in April, these gunships protected landing zones. The I Corps commander had to approve all requests for airstrikes. Members of 2nd Air Division, who visited the Air Operations Center there, had the impression that U.S. Army advisors dominated the scene. For example, the advisors funneled many air support requests to the two armed OV-1 Mohawks stationed at Da Nang. In the II Corps, eight U.S. Air Force B-26s joined the four Vietnamese A-1Hs at Pleiku. At once, air support sorties rose, probably because Vietnamese ground officers could see the aircraft on hand. But communications with the division command posts at Quinon and Quang Nai were regularly unreliable, and bad weather in the mountains east and northeast of Pleiku repeatedly impeded flights to the coastal provinces. To shake weather restrictions, MACV shifted two B-26s from Pleiku to Da Nang. Since the Vietnamese pilots were unable or unwilling to operate out of Quinon and Quang Nai, aircraft from Pleiku or Nha Trang supported the 9th and 25th Divisions. The division commanders complained that they had to divulge their operational plans before they wanted to. Also, for a short while, the 110th Liaison Squadron commander declined to send L-19s to Quang Nai. He resented the time a ground force officer had usurped the job of a Vietnamese air observer adjusting artillery. The T-28s dispatched to Queen An and Quang Tri were regularly late for planned operations, despite two days' advance notice. This deprived at least one Helleborne operation of air cover. When we speak of immediate airstrikes in this division, wrote Lieutenant Colonel Henry C. Meyer, 9th Division Air Liaison Officer, the Arvin only laugh and I can hardly blame them. Vietnamese air crews executed well in the two corps attack on the Yosa headquarters area during April 24th, May 24th, 1963. Their performance was below par in June, when the 9th Division triggered an 800-man Helleborn attack around Anke. The L-19 chosen to work the landing zone was late. Only one of the four pre-strike A-1Hs properly delivered napalm, and the H-21 helicopters had to circle and wait for the air preparations. Two days later, a Vietnamese forward air controller brought pre-strike A-1Hs to a landing zone 10 minutes early. On five separate occasions in the course of the action, L-19 pilots and observers were unable to accept strike aircraft at assigned rendezvous points. Air Force L-19s with American pilots and Vietnamese observers solved the problems. Poor performance by Vietnamese air crews imperiled several ground operations in the II Corps. Operations nonetheless made marked gains around Saigon, disrupting a key Viet Cong base and defending strategic hamlets in Quang Nai province against severe communist attacks. More and more local residents came forth with information on Viet Cong movements, and the popular forces defending the hamlets killed 383 enemy, while losing 33 of their own. In the Three Corps, north of Saigon, Vietnamese forces were busy. Rangers probed into Zone D, the 5th Division engaged the enemy in Zone C of Tainan Province, and the 23rd Division attacked Viet Cong bands and protected hamlets in the Ban Me Thuo area. Not one of these operations received enough tactical air support. The L-19s of the 112th Liaison Squadron at Tansanut worked both 3 and 4 Corps, 
and thus were often unavailable to one or the other. Poor communications between three corps headquarters and Banmetuo led to authorizing the 23rd Division 8T28 sorties each day from Natrang. As the division pushed deeper into Tainan province and outran dependable landline communications, radio equipment troubles increasingly impeded air support. The use of U.S. Army armed helicopters for fire support came to be routine. The four corps employed the 7th and 21st Divisions in the generally flat and water-sodden terrain of the densely populated Mekong Delta, where transportation was mostly by canal, but some by road. The ground favored the guerrillas who massed at places and times of their choosing. Skimpy landline communications made for heavy radio traffic. At Suk Trang, the five U.S. Air Force T-28s, together with a detachment of L-19s from the 122nd Liaison Squadron at Kanto, afforded airstrikes and forward air control. Like all other airfields in the Delta, Sok Trang needed development. Its unlighted 3,300-foot runway was suited solely to daytime T-28 operations. The glide slope was too steep for a T-28 to touch down safely in wet weather. Though a T-28 could take off at night or in bad weather, to land after a mission, it had to go to Saigon. MACV proposed constructing an airfield at Kanto to replace Sok Trang. Even so, building a 6,000-foot runway would take nearly $4.5 million in military assistance program funds and about two years to complete. The project continued under study in Hawaii. The 7th Division was distinctly less aggressive following the Battle of Ap Bak. The division commander, believing that the Viet Cong were monitoring his radio, directed unit commanders to hand-carry requests for air support to the division headquarters. The 21st Division engaged extensively in Helleborn operations through February and March. Plans were usually too ambitious for the troops committed, and the enemy was never where he was supposed to be. Postponements and no-notice changes in plans complicated the air scheduling of escort and strike planes. After three visiting Americans were pinned down by enemy fire for an hour while strike aircraft were circling overhead and no forward air controller was to be had, three U.S. Air Force pilots were assigned to the Vietnamese L-19 detachment at Canto. In April, a daring scenario called for 21st Division troops to go to the town of Rakhia by motor convoy and to faint away from the objective, the Viet Cong regional headquarters in western Kenyang province between Seven Mountains and the Cambodian border. On the following day, helicopters would land troops to storm the headquarters and to cut off probable escort routes to the mountains. Aircraft were to fly cover and support. The plan may have been compromised, for the Viet Cong withdrew from their sites several days before the assault. Then a classic demonstration of order, counter-order, and disorder took place. The division altered all helicopter radio frequencies, and some participants failed to receive notice. Several strike crews orbited target areas waiting for helicopters that never appeared. The ground troops did not clash with the foe, but his fire hit two UH-1 and seven H-21 helicopters. Interdiction bombing in seven mountains by U.S. and Vietnamese strike pilots was said to have killed 345 fleeing Viet Cong. To prevent whimsical, uncoordinated changes in planned helicopter operations directly affecting the escort, 
General Anthus asked the MACV Joint Frequency Coordinating Board to set up standard radio frequencies for Helleborn operations and to insist on their use. The Second Air Division assigned one of its KWM-2A radios and an operator to the 21st Division. This gave the U.S. Air Liaison Officer a rapid communications link to cope with sudden changes in air support needs. An Air Ground Operations School orientation team from the United States promoted understanding among 21st Division personnel of the procedures for air support at battalion and company levels. Pre-strikes, escort, and air cover were required items in 21st Division planning. On the 14th and 15th of June, in Kinjiang Province, B-26 pre-strikes and T-28 cover and escort helped the 21st Division kill 33 enemy, two by air, and capture 30. In Anshuen Province late in June, 107 communists were killed, 55 by air, 72 prisoners taken, and many arms and munitions captured. Air support coordination, it was reported, was absolutely outstanding. In contrast was the clear neglect of air support by the 7th Division early in July. The division commander aimed a Helleborne thrust at a Viet Cong force in Quinchua province, relying on the firepower of four UH-1 gunships. These helicopters could not knock out the guns dug in at the tree line adjacent to the landing zone. Before the afternoon was over, ground fire hit 11 helicopters and wounded three U.S. Army crewmen. Called to the scene, Two B-26s, six T-28s, and two 86s tangled with the communists. The Viet Cong retreated at nightfall, leaving behind the 24 men killed by airstrikes. The loss to enemy ground fire of two B-26s in February and a T-28 in June spurred a boost in airstrike firepower. With two B-26s in lieu of one and four T-28s rather than two, the crews could cover each other during low-level passes. Unfortunately, bigger flights meant fewer missions. General Anthus accented the importance of good defensive flying, mutual cover, suppression of hostile fire by strafing, evasive maneuvers, and avoiding needless exposure to ground fire. Stationing Vietnamese air units at small outlying airfields closer to the ground action was well-nigh impossible. Acute shortages existed in crew chiefs, electrical specialists, armorers, and other skilled men. There was also a dearth of specialist tools, test sets, as well as bomb handling trailers and other ground handling equipment. In consequence, the Vietnamese aircraft at forward fields were quickly out of commission. Yet Colonel Harvey E. Henderson, Deputy Commander of 2nd Air Division, could say, in my six months here, I have been amazed at the rapidity with which the VNAF have learned and improved their operations. Belying the progress was the resurgence of Viet Cong attacks. In July, the communists successfully struck Hamlet south of Bametuo and ambushed the roads leading into the area. They cowed the Montagnards, who became less helpful intelligence sources. In a 10-minute attack just before midnight on July 16th, 20 to 30 60 millimeter mortar rounds slammed into troop housing at Kanto Airfield and wounded 17 Vietnamese and U.S. Special Forces troops. The guerrillas slipped away without casualties. Statistics revealed a rising trend in Viet Cong attacks and other incidents, but a drop in the number of communist casualties, weapon losses, 
and defections. Even though General Harkins was pleased with the 15,000 Vietnamese operations per month in July and August, the national campaign plan needed a shot in the arm. Many offensive forays failed to find the foe. There were too many one-day-only operations, too few night ones. The Vietnamese did not patrol deep within Viet Cong areas, pursue enemy troops that broke contact, and capitalize on air reconnaissance. Beginning in September, the Viet Cong swept overexposed hamlets in the area south of Ban Mai Thuo. In the better-developed hamlets of Quang Nai province, enemy activity teams of three to five men achieved some gains. Vietnamese intelligence identified a large-scale, well-planned communist offensive in the Mekong Delta. Visiting Vietnam during the last week of September, Secretary McNamara and General Taylor deemed the military situation good, but political conditions explosive. A week later in Saigon, General Harkins told members of the House Foreign Affairs Far East Subcommittee that the military effort was going well, despite the shaky political scene. A significant JCS assessment supported this view. The faster tempo of Viet Cong attacks created new air support needs as Vietnamese and U.S. Air Force air power diminished. Vietnamese Air Force units appeared to be more interested in training than in combat. The 516th Fighter Squadron commander trimmed the T-28s in his detachment at Da Nang from 8 to 4. He based his action on the desire to release some T-28 pilots for upgrade training to A-1Hs. In September, the 514th Fighter Squadron commander gave on the average just nine of his 26 A-1Hs to the Air Operations Center for daily strike missions, saying he had to divert flying hours to A-1H pilot upgrading. For reasons unclear to Americans, he regularly ignored requests for napalm strikes. This happened principally in the Three and Four Corps during the rainy season, even though incendiaries worked better than explosives in the water-soaked terrain. Crews deployed for a while away from home bases seemed to be unmotivated, uneager, and unreliable. Under the rules of engagement, Farmgate continued to fly those combat missions that the Vietnamese could not. Though given more people, Farmgate failed to increase its sortie rate. The unit had been permitted to scale down normal maintenance because of the field operating conditions. Moreover, the planes were being overworked, and by autumn they were becoming less safe to fly. The operational readiness rate reached only 50 to 60 percent, due chiefly to spare part shortages. In-flight mechanical failures and enemy action likewise took their toll. A major cause of B-26 fatigue, not yet identified in the field, was the eight 750-pound bombs hung on specially designed racks under the aircraft's wings. When the B-26 was airborne, this weight did not overstress the wings. But taxiing the heavily armed plane for many months over rough runways and ramps imposed excessive negative g-force that brought the wings to their fatigue limit. A B-26 lost a wing in flight during a combat mission on August 16th, killing two Americans and a Vietnamese. September was no better. 23 aircraft suffered battle damage. Another B-26 and a T-28 crashed because of mechanical failures. On the 23rd, three Viet Cong guerrillas cut through the perimeter fence at Nha Trang and with package explosives blew up two C-47s. General Anthus hoped to keep the B-26s going by having the crews fly them cautiously and use soft approach and recovery tactics. In any event, 
every B-26 was set for rotation through depot maintenance contracted with AirAsia in Taiwan. Anthus urged replacing the battle-weary B-26s with dual-control Navy A-1E fighters or with on-mark B-26Ks being refurbished in the United States by the on-mark engineering company. In August and September, the 1st Air Commando Squadron was down to an average of 9 T-28s and 9-12 B-26s. Still, Farmgate was supposed to up its sortie rate by 20% to support planned Vietnamese ground offensives. Although Farmgate owned fewer planes after October 1963, standard U.S. Air Force maintenance procedures by the 34th Cameron at Binhua lifted the operationally ready rate to around 78%. Past Farmgate practices required 30 to 45 minutes to refuel, rearm, and turn around a flight of two T-28s. New safety checklists made two-hour turnarounds for T-28s and three-hour ones for B-26s the norm. Too few aircraft and a cutback in flying dampened morale in the overmanned 1st Air Commando Squadron. Depressed crews waited for days to fly a strike mission. A dearth of L-19s, O-1s, and crews for forward air control also sharply curtailed combat operations. Between May and August, 431 air support requests had to be turned down. The arrival of the Army's 73rd Aviation Company and the activation of the Air Force's 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron did not cure the trouble. Instead of placing the 2201s of the 73rd Aviation Company under the Tactical Air Control System, MACV assigned them to support Army advisors. The Vietnamese promptly withdrew their L-19s from the ground divisions because they felt that their craft were no longer needed. Army O-1s flew the local visual reconnaissance and convoy escort previously flown by the Vietnamese liaison planes. However, removal of the L-19s deprived forward air controllers and air liaison officers of transportation, unless they could borrow O-1s from the Army advisors. As for the 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron, it was fully operational by September 15th. The unit, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel John J. Wilfong, kept 16 O-1s at Benhua and 6 at Kanto. By year's end, they flew 3,862 sorties chiefly 483 forward air control, 1,221 visual reconnaissance, and 1,518 combat support liaison. The prompt response and can-do attitude of the crews bred a huge demand for their services. The Americans met with slight success in trying to augment rather than supplant Vietnamese liaison operations. A few U.S. Air Force pilots who flew with Vietnamese forward air controllers realized that these men had been doing a boring and fairly thankless job for many years, with no end in sight. Since the average Vietnamese pilot saw the law of averages working against him, he was reluctant to fly below 2,000 feet. If he directed an attack on friendly people, criminal prosecution awaited him. Nonetheless, the prevailing American view pictured Vietnamese crews as unaggressive and unreliable. By October, this disapproval was being expressed, by the overwhelming sentiment that we must run things. As sorties swelled to meet Viet Cong attacks, pre-mission briefings were seldom practical. Responding to requests, Vietnamese forward air controllers frequently flew many miles to an unfamiliar area. They radioed the ground unit to find out the locations of friendly and enemy troops, 
then mark targets for the strike crews. Air Force officers repeatedly urged the Vietnamese to attach air liaison officers and forward air controllers to divisions so they could get to know the local conditions. The Vietnamese Air Force said no, citing the scarcity of qualified officers, the failure of the young ones to work well when removed from close supervision, and the discord between air and ground officers. The vulnerable Mekong Delta induced the Viet Cong to escalate the war from simple guerrilla tactics to sustained field operations. A five-day battle erupted in the wee hours of September 10th as 81-millimeter mortar rounds arced into Suk Trong airfield. Inside of five minutes, four Farmgate pilots scrambled two T-28s, called for flare ship and more fighters, and strafed the mortar muzzle flashes. This swift air support, along with Vietnamese mortar fire, drove off the communists, foiling their bid to neutralize and destroy the American fighters and helicopters on the airstrip. The aggressive action of the pilots was commendable. All the same, they had broken the rules of engagement by attacking without Vietnamese crewmen and without target assistance from a forward air controller or flare ship. At about the same time, Viet Cong battalions pounded the district headquarters town of Dam Doi and Kainok, near the tip of the Kamau Peninsula. Swarming over Kainok, they set up roadblocks and laid mines in the sole-surfaced road between Baklo and Kamau. Right after daybreak, T-28s out of Sok Trong escorted Helleborn Vietnamese Marines to Dam Doi and carried out pre-landing strikes. Most landings went well, but that afternoon a T-28 crashed from fire received during a third pass over an enemy machine gun. A UH-1 gunship rescued the crew, and the T-28 was destroyed to keep its machine gun out of communist hands. While Marines encircled Dam Doi, 10 C-47s and 7 C-123s flew 498 paratroopers of the 21st Division to the scene. The battle cost the enemy 122 killed. 30 by airstrikes, and huge stores of munitions. Around Kainuok, the paratroopers killed 50 communists, captured eight, and seized weapons. The sortie rate for September 10th exceeded all past four corps records for a single day. Over September 10th through 14th, the sortie total ran to 72 air cover, 10 escort, 18 pre-landing, and 22 forward air control. The government troops won a victory, but the Viet Cong reduced the towns to rubble and left 153 civilians killed or wounded. The most critical shortcoming was too few strike aircraft to support the bitter war in the Delta. Only one B-26 could be spared to cover Helleborn operations in the 2nd Division area. The five U.S. Air Force T-28s at Sok Trong were invaluable for quick reaction but the primitive airstrip hampered them, and their guns were too light to silence ground fire. Heavier armed A-1Hs, or B-26 at Benhua, had to make a 30-minute flight to Kanto, or a one-hour one, to the deep delta. Aware of this lag, the Viet Cong usually attacked in mid-afternoon to make it difficult for aircraft to get into the area, to swing into position, and to strike during the few remaining hours of daylight. In January 1964, Sink Pak approved the construction of a new airfield at Kanto to be ready a year later. Planning a helicopter assault into three landing zones in mid-October, the 21st Division asked for strong tactical air support. Five U.S. Air Force T-28s, 
two A1Hs, and one B-26 were available for cover, escort, and pre-landing strikes. On the morning of October 19th, T-28 supported the first helicopter lift of troops, which met with light ground fire at the landing zone. The Viet Cong put stiffer fire on the second heli lift and pinned down the troops that landed. They also hit and damaged a B-26 and a T-28, forcing the planes to leave their covering stations. The third heli lift overshot its landing zone, and enemy fire downed an H-21, injuring two of the four Americans aboard. With troops in the second and third heli lifts nailed down, Vietnamese forward air controllers diverted all of their air cover to close air support strikes. In response to the division commander's call for more air support, the planes returned and renewed their strikes that afternoon. Army advisors praised the aggressiveness of the support, chiefly that of the B-26. It pursued the attack with other ordnance after its guns quit, even though under fire from six to eight automatic weapons. The Viet Cong held firm in their trenches and fired doggedly at attacking aircraft. When they withdrew at nightfall under cover of rain, Pursuit by flare ship and fighters was out of the question because locations of government forces were uncertain. During the battle, Vietnamese flew six A1H and eight T-28 sorties, while U.S. Air Force crews flew 16 T-28 and two B-26 sorties. Ground fire struck two Vietnamese T-28s, four U.S. Air Force T-28s, and two U.S. Air Force B-26s. Friendly losses included 41 killed, 84 wounded, 23 Americans, and one H-21 shot down. 32 of the enemy were killed, and in addition, 59 freshly dug graves were found. Early on the morning of November 7th, some 200 Viet Cong attacked a pagoda and then holed up in a mud-walled fishing settlement about 20 miles from Sok Trong. In late afternoon, regular ground forces and Civil Guard troops located and surrounded them. Although no friendly people were in the village, the government troops made no assault. Instead, they let four T-28s from Sok Trong conduct repeated strikes. The next day, blood marks within the enclosure suggested that the aircraft had killed about 40 Viet Cong. By the end of 1963, the government military offensive was collapsing, despite occasional and isolated successes. The Viet Cong were seizing the initiative nearly everywhere. The limited number of U.S. Air Force and Vietnamese aircraft in Vietnam had nevertheless scored some tactical gains in the face of severe handicaps. End of chapter 15